just move on up toward your destination. Though you may find from time to time complication. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim Dirigatis, and that's a little bit of the song "Move On Up" by the legendary Curtis Mayfield. This week, we'll be taking a closer look at the musical movement for which he was a key figure, Chicago Soul. Absolutely, Greg. In addition to being exciting and fun music to listen to, these songs tell the story of political and cultural change in Chicago from the 1960s through the 1980s. Its lasting impact can still be felt today through artists such as Common and Kanye West, Chance the Rapper, No Name, and many others. The Chicago Soul Movement began uh, brewing in the late 50s, right around the same time as legendary institutions like Motown in Detroit and Stax Records in Memphis. But what made Chicago Soul different from the other scenes was the diversity of its sound. Sonically, artists incorporated the gospel influence of the South, but added lush orchestral arrangements. Vocally, there were singers who had a more traditional baritone voice, but also those that sung in a higher register, leading some to label the movement as soft soul. One group in particular played with both vocal styles. The Impressions, led by Jerry Butler, who had the deeper voice, and the great Curtis Mayfield, who sang in that higher register. The Impressions are often considered the beginning of Chicago soul, with their 1958 debut hit, For Your Precious Love. But other acts were important too, including Rotary Connection featuring Minnie Ripperton, The Dells, and Terry Collier. And let's not forget the, the major institutions that helped this scene come together, the record labels and radio stations. Unlike Motown and Stax, which were single-label in-house operations, Chicago had several different recording entities. Some of these included the legendary Chess Records, VJ, and Curtis Mayfield's own Kurtom. And that's leaving out quite a few players. Plus, you had WVON, the black radio station in the city, really helping this music rise to prominence and connect with black audiences. Now we're going to discuss some of the different artists and groups key to this movement in more detail. Let's welcome our guest, author of the book, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power, Aaron Cohen. Aaron, welcome back to Sound Opinions. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's always a pleasure to listen to your show, and it's a double pleasure to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you for saying that. So there's media here, there's community here, and the music is is part and parcel of it all. We're going to look at a couple of artists from the book, one by one. Uh, Greg and I have been talking for some time about doing a, a classic album dissection of, of a Curtis Mayfield disc, and we're going to do that. But he is the man, the genius, the legend on the cover of Move On Up, your book. Talk about Curtis's iterations. Well, there were so many different iterations, and he started out as a very young man in music. I start the book when his group, The Impressions, were walking down record row, and he was a teenager. My heart is open to you, and I will always be true 
years later when Curtis Mayfield emerged as a songwriter and started writing these classic songs. He was a young man in his early 20s when he was writing People Get Ready, which was one of the great civil rights anthems. People get ready as a train of coming. You don't need no baggage. You just get on board. All you need is faith to hear the deep He had this very individualistic way of tuning his guitar, the F sharp. He also was very much ahead of his time in terms of controlling his own music, his own publishing, him and his business partner and manager, Eddie Thomas, and they set up Kurt Tom Records. He would also be a mentor and leader to other artists who were coming up, like the young Five Stair Steps. And then he goes solo and working in film and doing these scores for Superfly being the most famous one, but so many others. Oh, Superfly, you're gonna make your fortune burn But if you lose, don't ask no questions why. The only game you know is do or die. So there's all these different ways that he was getting involved in music and excelling at such a high level from a very young age. Uh, it's just incredible he was able to do all this and that Chicago provided him the space to do it. How was this young man who grew up in the projects at Cabrini Green able to translate his understanding of the world into these extremely poetic songs? Was there something in the water here in Chicago? Um, <laughs> Aaron, or was it just Curtis was an exceptional human being? I mean, how, what do you attribute that to, that his, his songwriting acumen was so sharp and so, so young? Well, along with his own talents, along with his own way of just sort of, you know, taking the guitar, tuning it to the dark keys on the piano, and doing a lot of reading, people like Paul Lawrence Dunbar. But I think what also should be stated is that there was a collective effort in what he did. He worked very closely with Johnny Pate. And you know, Johnny Pate was able to hear what Curtis Mayfield was doing and was able to transpose in these different keys because Johnny Pate was a great bassist, great composer. You know we are two of a kind A sad, sad girl and boy And I Like crying, you know he feels like crying because I have no one to He worked these lengthy jazz jam sessions where you had to learn how to transpose and how to respond very quickly. So Curtis Mayfield was able to work with people like him, and then another great guitarist, Phil Upchurch, who played on those records. And so Having people like that around him, being surrounded by this great community, helped Curtis Mayfield become Curtis Mayfield. Let's stay with Mayfield's extended family for the next artist we're going to talk about, Aaron. Jerry Butler. What a fascinating character in so many ways. Tell us about Jerry Butler. 
Well, Jerry Butler started out, he grew up in Cabrini Green, as uh, did Curtis Mayfield, but Jerry Butler personified that interconnection between music and politics. You know, after he left music, he ran a beer distributorship for a while and then uh, became a Cook County commissioner, which was a political job that he had for decades up until his retirement uh, very recently. But Jerry Butler as a singer was very fascinating too. He had this wonderful, wonderful voice. So tell him that I'm gonna give you up. Whisper in his ear, no matter how you treat me. You tell him what Jerry said and never let you go. So don't you think of me? Hey, don't you understand what you're doing to the man? And he and after Jerry Butler left the Impressions, after Curtis Mayfield left the Impressions, they still collaborated, and Curtis Mayfield still wrote for Jerry Butler. But Jerry Butler also had this collective ideal, and in the latter 60s, early 70s, he started a songwriter's workshop. So initially, the songwriter's workshop was for him to come up with more compositions for his own recordings, but it grew into something very different. It grew into a way for upstart uh, Chicago-based songwriters to not only create music for other artists, but to also learn about publishing, to receive a salary while they were writing. And so many great songwriters came out of that. Chuck Jackson, for instance, Marvin Yancey, who they later went on to work with uh, Natalie Cole. And Terry Collier was able to write and compose with Larry Wade, so many great songs for the Dells, as well as Terry Collier's own records. And Jerry Butler was part and parcel of that. So Jerry Butler was always a leader. He also recorded some other really interesting concepts albums in the early 70s that deserve more credit. So he, as a singer, as a collaborator, as a leader, as an organizer of songwriters, and then later as a elected official, uh, did a lot of great work for Cook County as part of the Cook County Board. And he helped organize a lot of musicians into this political direction, into holding elected office. And again, to talk about the diversity in Chicago, there was such a diversity in activism that Jerry Butler represented the epitome of going after elected office and holding elective office. We're talking with Aaron Cohen, the author of Move On Up, A History of Chicago Soul Music. Aaron, you, uh, you dig deep into the first song that really put the impressions on the map, Jerry Butler and Curtis Mayfield and their friends. It was basically a neighborhood doo-wop group for your precious love. When with Butler on lead vocals, when he was still a teenager, and I, you know, I swear you listen to that record, and he sounds like he's probably 35, 40 years old. You think, you know, with that baritone voice. But what was it about that song? It was such a signature song for them, but also a signpost song for that transition from from doo-wop into soul. I think Jerry Butler's maturity, his mature sounding voice, was certainly a big part of it the harmonies, and that it's such a sparse song, too. It, the way they use so much empty space in that room, recording it at Universal, the great studio. And darling, they say that our love won't grow, but I just want to tell them that they 
The way the voices play off of that sense of open and empty space is so beautiful and such a departure from what came before and set the stage for what came later. And it's such a beautifully written tune in terms of its yearning, in terms of its tone, in terms of all of the sort of emotions that flow through it in such a way that there's this mystery about it as well, which I think is also so important to classic soul music. That was the launching point, and it really kind of broke the group up too, didn't it? The impressions. Well, yeah. See, the, of course, that that story is that, um, unbeknownst to the group, it became Jerry Butler and the impressions. Uh, needless to say, the other impressions were not happy about that. Um, VJ mm-hmm. Records thought that they could do better uh, presenting Jerry Butler as the star of the group, and that did lead to some uncomfortable situations for sure. But they ended up having both uh, stellar careers. The Impressions went on to dominate the 60s with their civil rights anthems, uh, with Mayfield writing the bulk of their songs, and Butler went on to have an incredibly successful solo career. So it it worked out, I guess, right? It it worked out for all of them. And I think it's a testament to the talents of Jerry Butler, Curtis Mayfield, and then the other people in The Impressions too, Sam Gooden and Fred Cash, that they were all able to convene on their own terms, do their own thing, create their own music, and it was very, very good indeed. In the background, as as this music is being made, you know, Chicago as a, a center of uh, Black cultural awakening and Black political movements, I, I just find it fascinating, Aaron, that you have the Black Panthers, you know, hardcore community activists, you have the Nation of Islam, and you have the the kind of the Baptist power structure represented by Operation Push and Jesse Jackson, like like those three wings of of black political power uh, don't agree about anything, but they all come together to listen to the impressions. <laughs> well, yes, I do want to mention that Elijah Muhammad did have a very strong role in what was happening here culturally. Phil Karan, who set up the Afro Arts Theater, which I talked about in my book, was an early follower of Elijah Muhammad. Syl Johnson, who recorded Is It Because I'm Black, went on great length to me when I interviewed him over several hours about Elijah Muhammad's influence in terms of self-ownership, in terms of controlling his own company, controlling one's own destiny. So Martin Luther King, of course, um, had a huge impact and his message, his role, and the way people in the city responded to Martin Luther King when he moved here in the 1960s and the way young people responded. And that, of course, comes out in the music. And then the corporate model of Operation Push in the early 70s, very connected to music, very connected to music production. And so, yes, there were these different strains as well. And Shaka Khan was an early follower of Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. The Black Panthers had a very strong appeal to young people like Shaka Khan at that time, as well as some older musicians like Tyrone Davis also was a follower of Fred Hampton and the Black Panthers. So, yes, there were these different paths that political and um, civil rights groups, post-civil rights groups, black power groups all had towards their agenda. And music was also very much a part of all of that. When we return, more on Chicago Soul. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed nationally by PRX. Oh, what a night. 
Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week we're exploring the musical movement known as Chicago Soul. We're talking with Aaron Cohen, author of the book Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. We've discussed Curtis Mayfield, Jerry Butler and the Impressions, but now I want to talk about the Dells. Their work spans six, seven decades. Aaron, how were they able to stay relevant for such a long period of time? It's so incredible with the Dells because they not only stayed together for decades, but they stayed together with essentially the same lineup uh, for decades, which is extremely rare for any kind of group. The Dells came from the southern suburbs of Chicago, and they were so versatile. They were jazz singers. They backed up Dinah Washington, and the Dells were able to go on stage with her, were able to improvise alongside of her. They were able to be sophisticated when they needed to be. And that versatility in what the Dells were doing served them incredibly well as the 60s and 70s went on as they worked with these different arrangers. They worked, they were initially, yes, a a doo-wop group. They initially sang, you know, straight ahead R&B, but this experience in their jazz background when they worked with more experimental producers like Charles Stepney. And Charles Stepney would create all of these different effects and all of these different arrangements. And the Dells were able to create their own vocal lines alongside of these. And also they had such great songwriters working for them like Terry Collier and Larry Wade and that they were so versatile in adapting this new material and in growing with it and coming up with new ideas and then being able to hold notes for as long as they could. Having that sophistication and ability which is so incredibly important for vocalists of any genre that the Dells were able to draw on so many different genres for what they were doing. Yeah, because I think a lot of people still associate the group if they, you know, associate them with anything at all. It's with the Five Heartbeats, that Robert Townsend 1991 film, which was loosely based on the lives of the group members. But I think it sort of casts them as, you know, kind of an oldies act. And what your book really points out is those how adventurous those albums they made in the late 60s, early 70s with with Stepney were. What was it about that transition from the way they sounded uh, 15 years before? Sure, Freedom Means, I think, would be uh, one of the examples of a classic um, album from that time period. It's time for us to try uniting. We got to make a whole new scene. Maybe then it's funny because I interviewed at length the late uh, Chuck Barksdale from the Dells and um, he told me that when they first started recording with Charles Stepney and Charles Stepney started getting into the piano and messing around with the strings and doing all of these weird effects on the piano and Chuck Barksdale told me that um, he didn't want to see Charles Stepney looking at him because Chuck Barksdale had a look on his face like, this man is crazy. But once they heard what um, Charles Stepney was able to do musically and how it fit into what they were doing, they went along with it. 
And the Dells also, especially Chuck Barksdale, who was basically their spokesperson, had a very strong belief in civil rights, had a very strong belief in black empowerment. Um, Chuck Barksdale was a member of the Nation of Islam because he felt very strongly about their meaning and also the discipline involved in being a part of that organization. So when these songwriters like Terry Collier and Larry Wade and Charles Stepney were writing message music, they were very much inclined to be a part of that agenda, musically, socially, artistically. And not that many groups were so eager to do that, but they certainly were. Freedom means being able to say what's on your mind and speak right out and talk about the things we know that should be better. Freedom means being able to make your space and time. And if we try, there's no doubt we can work it all out together. Let's talk about Rotary Connection and the great Minnie Ripper. Rotary Connection is another great uh, transition because that was another project. Uh, Charles Stepney, who I mentioned a bit ago, Charles Stepney was working as a copyist at Chess Records and just copying their scores so that they could be copyrighted. Well, he was classically trained. He had very interesting classical concepts. He studied the uh, Joseph Schillinger system of classical music. Marshall Chess, the son of Leonard Chess, the owner of the company, um, and Charles Stepney got to be friends. And Charles Stepney said to Marshall Chess, hey, you know, I got these compositions. I got these uh, arrangements. And Marshall Chess was like, I got an idea. Let's put that to music and let's get a group together and let's combine this classical, these classical compositions with this very mixed group of people because we had musicians who were basically a white garage band combined with Sidney Barnes, who was working at chess as a songwriter and singer. Um, and there was Judy Hauf, who was a folk singer from the Dakotas, who was in the group. And then there was Minnie Ripperton, who had sung for a while with a group called The Gems. And she had a little solo career at first. Uh, that didn't really quite work out. She was working as a receptionist at chess. They brought Minnie Ripperton in. And as it turns out, Minnie Ripperton had a five octave vocal range, <laughs> which would be, you know, which is really incredible. Yeah, and so they all came together. And then there were also in the studio at uh, Chess these really incredible studio musicians like the drummer Morris Jennings, like the guitarist Phil Upchurch. They would bring in uh, extra singers like Chuck Barksdale from the Dells. 
and create these really amazing concepts drawing on all of these different sources. And psychedelia was in effect. Uh, They certainly uh, were part of the psychedelic movement in a lot of ways in terms of their lyrics, in terms of their attitudes, in terms of the kind of songs that they would cover as well. They would cover some psychedelic rock tunes in their own way, in their own style with Charles Stepney's incredibly complex, incredibly moving arrangements. I've been waiting so long To be where I'm going In the sunshine And we had some very hip songwriting from people like Sidney Barnes. And then we had Minnie Riperton's incredible vocal range on top of everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating band. Um, multiracial. I think you uh, made some comparisons to Sly and the Family Stone, which I don't think were ill-advised at all. It was, it was interesting how Sly gets a lot of credit for doing many of the things that Rotary Connection was doing in parallel in Chicago at the time, right? Absolutely. And Rotary Connection was known in the Midwest. Um, They were playing, you know, at shows, playing at festivals. They were uh, frequently on double bills with uh, these guys from Detroit called the MC5 and the Stooges. (laughs) So they were working the circuit here. Um, They had some bad breaks. Uh, For instance, their uh, manager at the time thought it wouldn't really be a good idea to play Woodstock. So, you know, something that Sly and the Family Stone got attention for that maybe could have gone to Rotary Connection. Mm-hmm. And there was some other dissension within the group. And then, of course, Minnie Riberton was destined for solo success. And eventually that's what happened with Minnie Riberton. Although in the 70s, too, she would, you know, use members of Rotary Connection like Sidney Barnes to work with her as well. So... Um, yeah, they should have been better known. Uh, Minnie Riperton, of course, had stardom afterwards. But as a musical group that challenged a lot of notions as to what soul music is, what rock music is, mm-hmm. what the lines are among Chicago's musical artistic demographics, uh, Rotary Connection posed a really strong challenge, a really strong answer to all of that. Certainly a wonderful group that deserved far more attention. That was one of the reasons why I wanted to put them in the book was because their music, their message, their message just by existing was so challenging and so strong that they really need more attention. We weren't going to talk about this artist, Aaron, but I have got to ask because you completely blew my mind with his story and introduced me to him. And I've been going down the rabbit hole ever since. I am, of course, given my fondness for uh, psychedelic music, talking about James Thomas Ramey, a.k.a. Baby Huey. So I'm running, I'm so tired, can't stop now. What an incredible story, and what a sad story, too. Baby Huey and his group, The Babysitters, who also played the same circuit as Rotary Connection. Baby Huey was a soul rock singer, uh, originally from Indiana, moved to Chicago, and 
how do I put this in a way that's delicate? Well, he could dance like James Brown while weighing somewhere between 350 and 400 pounds. Um, you know, there was more really, than James Brown. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He weighed a bit more than James Brown, but people who saw him said he could dance like him, but he also had this incredible singing voice, just this really great uh, tone to the way he sang a really great, great control. And he was also a great band leader from people I spoke to who worked in his band, just in terms of controlling the band in terms of the way he would arrange things, the way he would arrange the band, and again, this was another group that, like Rotary Connection, were mostly African-American, but somewhat integrated. They had a white bassist for a while, Dan Alfano. And, you know, they played in, in white clubs, white rock clubs. They had hits on the South Side. Herb Kent on WVON was a big fan. And that was a group that Donny Hathaway, who was doing A&R for Kurtom Records, discovered brought to Curtis Mayfield's attention and Curtis Mayfield thought, Oh, these guys are great. You know, I got to go, I got to got to produce them. And Curtis Mayfield produced their one album, which tragically enough was released posthumously because baby Huey died of a drug overdose during the recording, but such a, such a great sound to his voice. And his, a lot of his songs, if you listen to them, um, whether it's hard times or his version of change is going to come, it's been a long, a long time coming, but I know a change is gonna come. A lot of them dealt with maybe the way he felt about himself, the way he felt about his place in the world, uh, the way he felt about being an African-American singer in some of it. Um, and his also just his cultural shout outs in some of these songs too, really amazing. And there was some humor in what he did too. I mean, obviously if you're weighing 350 pounds and you call yourself baby Huey, you got to have a sense yeah. of humor about yourself. <laughs> and he certainly did. There's a great photo in your book of him, uh, uh, you know, with this giant Afro in overalls barefoot on stage. Absolutely. And that was at a uh, rock festival in Wisconsin, which a uh, rotary connection also played at. So he would draw in the rock crowd, draw in the hippie crowd, that driving funk that, uh, mixed with garage rock was a great sound. And that's one of the reasons why it was so heavily sampled to this day is still these, uh, hard times is sampled a lot. The phenom, the chicken can't live. Who I'm is, we ain't got and shut and got to get. Y'all done flipped y'all way, blacked out the crib, dying left for my skin. Then my bad kids free. So sampling gave Baby Huey and the Babysitters kind of a second life, as it were. Yeah, I think uh, the genre blurring is such a big part of uh, a lot of the key artists you're writing about. They were so versatile, so able to converse with so many styles of music. A great example of that is Terry Collier, obviously. A guy who uh, basically made his mark, you know, when he was young, then quit the business altogether for 20 years and then came back and, uh, you know, had almost like a, a second career at that point. Collier is one of those figures that I think if people who love worship Van Morrison's Astral Weeks and have never heard of Terry Collier, their minds are going to be blown when they hear some of those records that he made in those early years in Chicago. What was it about him 
Aaron, that made him distinctive from just about anybody else on the Chicago scene at the time? Well, Terry Collier blended folk music, jazz improvisation, soul singing, and songwriting. He recorded some great records for Cadet, which Charles Stephanie produced. Better think on it right up. Baby, you might miss me when I'm gone, gone, gone. I'll tell you when I'm gone. I do declare you're gonna miss your candy man. Yeah, I'm keeping you safe and warm. Yeah, baby, keeping you out of home. He also wrote some wonderful songs uh, alongside his partner, Larry Wade, uh, such as The Dells, The Love We Had Stays On My Mind. And he was someone who brought these different communities together through his music. Uh, his music, his songs were about love and hope and coming together. And he was also just an outstanding original voice. You know, I also have to say, I interviewed him in 1997. And I have to bring up this little personal anecdote. When I went to interview him, he recorded an album in the 1960s called The New Folk Sound of Terry Collier, where he combined uh, jazz improvisation in his singing with a uh, folk guitar and a couple to a bass duo. And he asked me when I interviewed him if I had ever heard the album. And I admitted that I had not. So what he did was he brewed a pot of tea, he turned down the lights, lit some candles, Put the record on and we just sat and quietly listened to it. That shows you what a quiet, humble, and very loving, warm person he was. He would wow people on the folk scene in Chicago when he would appear in the folk music clubs. He would wow people when he would, again, write these great songs. for. Uh, he wrote songs for Rotary Connection, The Dells. Um, but all of his music is just so beautiful, and he reflected such warmth in everything he did. He was such an individualistic uh, musician that he really exemplified a lot while also standing out a lot. He also was very interesting too because he took a lot of time away from music to raise his daughter as a single father so he was a very much committed family man as well i just love him and miss him dearly one of the things that is interesting about the scene in chicago aaron is that there was no sort of central you know headquarters for soul music quote unquote i mean you had motown in detroit you had stacks in memphis there was no one single label or one single mogul associated with soul. So how did these disparate movements and personalities mesh during this era? One of the interesting things I found out in doing my research was that so many of these musicians and 
no matter who they were recording for, whether they were recording for the same company, recording for different companies, it seems that everybody got along very well. There were friendly rivalries among artists, friendly competitions. I talk in my book about how Eugene Record, who was a singer and songwriter for the Shy Lights, and uh, Lowell Simon, who was the singer and songwriter for the Lost Generation, had a friendly rivalry in the Brunswick uh, studios as to who could write and record the most songs uh, quickly. And, you know, and they would also hang out together at places like Bats, which was a Jewish-owned restaurant at the end of Record Row. So, you know, Clarence Ludd, who was the uh, proprietor of the High Chaparral uh, Club, everybody loved him. So, as much as I you know, would look and try to see if I could find any major sources of conflict among artists, I really could not find uh, much at all. It was really remarkable in that sense. And then other people I spoke to, like Richard Steele, who was a longtime radio a media personality, told me the same thing, that everybody got along. There were friendly rivalries, but among artists and among many people in the media, they got along. There were conflicts between artists and record company owners and conflicts among radio station people and radio station owners. But among artists and among jocks, DJs, a lot of the entertainment reporters in Chicago at that time, there was this real affinity for each other. We have been talking to Aaron Cohen. He is an educator in Chicago, a musical historian, a journalist, a friend of Sound Opinions. The new book, Move On Up, Chicago Soul Music and Black Cultural Power. Aaron, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much for having me on Sound Opinions. This is a terrific program, so it was a real honor for me to be here. When we return, we'll talk with the host of WBEZ and Vocalo's Reclaimed Soul and former Sound Opinions producer, Ayana Contreras, an expert on Chicago Soul. She's going to talk about where in music today you can see and hear the movement's lasting impact. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week, we are going to continue our deep dive into the musical movement known as Chicago Soul. Greg, uh, there is no way we could talk about Chicago Soul and not turn to our friend, Ayana Contreras. She spent two and a half years until just this past May as a Sound Opinions producer. She is the queen. All right, she was just the queen of Chicago soul in terms of history, in terms of the present. She hosts an incredible show called Reclaim Soul that you can find on the web. She's an author. She's a DJ. Ayana, we've missed you. Man, it's so strange doing all of those things from my house. (laughs) How are you guys doing? We're all very lonely. Well, I said I was lonely a couple of weeks ago. Cotton and I haven't been in the same room for this long for 22 years. It's good to hear your voice, Ayana. <laughs> and you are the queen of Chicago soul, as far as we're concerned. You've uh, spent a long time studying and loving and bringing this music out to the world through your radio exploits. You've been uh, following contemporary Chicago hip-hop, rap, and soul music for a number of years. So we wanted to get your perspective on where you see the impact of this musical movement today. Where is Chicago soul today, Ayana? The interesting thing about a lot of the younger folks that are making soulful music today is they might not necessarily be 
squarely within soul as a subgenre of rhythm and blues. But everyone that I've spoken to feels so connected to that heritage and they feel as though they are trying to take that legacy into the 21st century. They, they take that very seriously, that mm-hmm. charge. What are some artists that you in particular believe are carrying on that tradition? You know, one of my favorites is a young man by the name of BJ the Chicago Kid. came up the same way a lot of the rappers that we talk about came up making a bunch of mixtapes and sort of working behind the scenes one of the first times i ever heard his voice was singing back up for kanye west on his song impossible which had an interesting sample of a new birth record um, but the background vocals were incredible I followed him from there. He did a series of mixtapes and ultimately got signed to Motown Records, which was a kind of a coup for somebody who previously had just done some independent mixtapes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's had a pretty long career, too. I mean, he's in his mid-30s now, right? And he has been making records for a uh, decade plus. And consistent presence on the charts. He's not like a, a huge chart-topping artist, but he seems to, his, a lot of his recordings seem to seem to chart, and, and there is an audience for it. I mean, who do you see as the audience for the Chicago soul sound uh, these days? You know, it sort of balances between your average listener of a hip-hop radio station, but then also people who are really just interested in what they have historically called the urban adult contemporary sound, which is sort of a more laid-back version of R&B that is sort of part and parcel for listeners of uh, soul music in their 30s to age 50s. So he has a wide range of folks who are listening to him at any given time, which I guess helps him with his longevity. Mm-hmm. Who else is carrying the sound forward, Iona? Oh, one of my absolute favorites, I guess I'm listing all my favorites, right, is an artist by the name of Avery R. Young. And the thing that Avery and BJ have in common among other things, is that they're both so rooted in the sound of gospel, which is another, you know, Mm. underpinning of Chicago soul more broadly, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Avery R. Young likes to talk about when you go down any street on the west side, like a main thoroughfare, you're just as likely to find a church and a club right next door to each other. And he's interested in hearing the bleed over between those two places. And you can hear that bleed over in his music. Who do you think BJ and Avery are emulating most? You know, I don't know that they're really strongly emulating one particular person, but speaking to both of them, Uh, they always mention lesser known gospel artists as Mm. being 
where they really see themselves rooted in, um, I think more than anyone else, less like, again, less than straight ahead soul artists. But if you were to talk to someone like Donny Hathaway back in the day, back when he was Donny Pitts, he was in the church, right? So it's yeah. maybe two degrees of separation, but definitely yeah. very connected to gospel sounds. Who else? There's uh, at least one other name that I know you're going to mention uh, that we all love. Well, yeah, I, you know, I couldn't mention those folks and mention the church without mentioning Jamila Woods, who is able to imbue her recordings with a very spiritual element and a message of empowerment and a message of connection to the community that also reflects in her personal life. You don't know a thing about a story, tell it wrong all the time. When I spoke with her, what was interesting was she didn't immediately think of herself as a singer, even though she had been in the church and, and singing from a young age. She really started out as a poet uh, at Young Chicago Authors mm -hmm. and then ultimately really came to terms with the sound, the singing sound that God gave her. And her breakthrough record was ironically a song called Sunday Candy from Donnie Trumpet's Surf album. Really, yeah. that's where people really heard her voice on a national level for the first time. And then her first album, Heaven, followed. And uh, her latest album, Legacy Legacy, again, ties herself uh, to this broader legacy of music, of soul music, black music that has come before her. Now, we, yeah. we are all huge fans of Jamila Woods here. We've talked about her on the show. Ayana, as someone who loves the history of this music and champions it, uh, doesn't live in the past, is bringing it to the present, why do you think there's a lesser awareness of the Chicago soul era, that first classic era and sound, than there is of, say, Stax Volt or Motown? I'm going to say something that might be controversial. Um, because well, I love Motown. we would expect Motown. nothing less from you, our friend. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's what I do. I love Motown. I love Detroit, right? I love Stax and Memphis. The thing about Chicago is we just have too many incredible genres of music that we have um, really changed for the better on a large scale. So when you think about Chicago music, there's a lot to think about. You can think about house. Yeah. You can think about, you know, you can think about the birth of modern gospel. You can think about... Um, Jazz, Electric you can blues. think about blues, blues yeah. obviously. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. Um, mm -hmm. And I think with Soul, somehow it got lost in the story. But I do think that just in terms of really pivotal sounds, Chicago, I wouldn't say is unmatched, but can, can play with the big boys. Yeah, so it's like the world got tired and said, Chicago, stop inventing new genres. We've had enough <laughs> from you. <laughs> I mean, honestly, there's just so many. There's just, it's, I was having a conversation with Jason Moran, who's a, a, a jazz musician who's from Houston, and he was like, the thing about Chicago is that there's just too much. You know, it's just incredibly impactful for one city to have. Because mm -hmm. we were talking about New Orleans, and it's like, you know, New Orleans, it's so much easier to tell that story, whereas Chicago, just music all over the place. You know, uh, so, Ayanna, uh, some great examples you've given us of uh, modern-day 
uh, inheritors of the Chicago soul tradition, all doing their own thing, all taking that sound somewhere new. We covered with Aaron Cohen and gave our own two cents some of the greats of the first era. Who bridged the gap? Because, you know, the first sound kind of, uh, you know, runs out a little bit of steam by the 80s, you know, and here we are in the 2000s. Who, who came in between that kept it alive? So a lot of those folks, just because the nature of the Chicago music scene wound up sort of breaking out outside of Chicago. So their sort of Chicago narrative sometimes doesn't follow them. But I can think of from the group Shalimar, Jody Watley, who actually wound up starting out as a dancer on Soul Train, but was initially yeah. from Chicago, wound up having mm-hmm. a career in the starting in the late 70s into the 80s, sort of at the very tail end of the Chicago soul music scene as you have talked about it. Let's make tonight become Ooh. a night to remember my sweet love. And then into the 80s and 90s, there were a lot of singers who sort of their um, their ace in the hole was singing on hip hop tracks. So Shantae Savage, she was a wonderful vocalist. Uh, Dave Hollister, uh, mm, he yeah. didn't have the crossover hits that some of these other folks that you've mentioned had, but he was very popular on urban radio in the early uh, 2000s and the late 90s. Carl Thomas was a great vocalist, still a great vocalist, who came out of Chicago. His first album, uh, Emotional, was a huge record for a lot of people. always someone out there that was carrying that torch that folks in Chicago could look at and say oh wow that person just has that thing that that very Chicago thing yeah well the music never dies and it certainly uh, lives on in your reclaimed soul everybody should listen all the time Ayana thanks for coming back oh thank you that wraps up our talk about Chicago soul And now we want to hear from you. Who is your favorite artist from that sound and that era? Do you have any memories of listening to the music at the time it came out? Call 888-859-1800 and leave us a message. Greg, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, we have an in-depth conversation with drummer of Talking Heads, Chris Franz. You can download the Sound Opinions podcast wherever you get such things. The show was produced by Brendan Banizak, Alex Claiborne, and Andrew Gill. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800. You never call my name. Messages. Hey, Greg and Jim, Connor calling from Lawrence, Kansas. Great show as always. Um, and listening to your episode about helping songs, I thought I'd offer a song that 
is sort of a little bit of a darker helping song, if you will. Um, if I had a rocket launcher by Bruce Coburn, which of course uh, describes the uh, horrific time um, in the 80s that uh, the Guatemalans were facing with a very brutal dictatorship and Bruce basically offering to lend a hand that uh, if he had a rocket launcher, he'd make somebody pay. Uh, yeah, got to love Bruce Coburn. Thanks, guys. Hi, Drs. Jim and Greg. My name is Ann. I'm calling from Santa Cruz. And I um, am a hospital nurse and proud to be one. And also, I wanted to uh, make a comment about a help song. I really did enjoy all the historical songs, and it was around for the releasing of every one of those songs. Uh, but I'd like to make an obvious contribution, and that is Jason Isbell off uh, the new Jason Isbell and the 400 unit album. Uh, the song, What Have I Done to Help? What have I done to help? What have I done to help? Somebody save me. What have I done to help? What have I done to help? Not myself. Thank you, doctors. Have a great day. What have I done to help? What have I done to help? Somebody save me. Yes, hi, this is Allison from Rochester, New York, calling about your rock doctor segment from last week. I love this. Um, I would offer up for Hannah and her grandma, Phosphorescence album, Muchacho. Uh, it's a straight listen, no skip album, each track is lyrically rich and human. The music is gorgeous. Song for Zula is amazing. It's got it that song in particular got some attention, but the whole album is a brilliant masterpiece. So I hope they can listen to that. All right, thanks so much. Bye. Some say love is burning that it made But I know love as a fading thing Just as fickle as a feather in stream Hello, this is Deborah Samat from Austin, Texas calling about uh, album recommendations for the grandmother with Alzheimer's who liked Judy Collins so much. I think she would really enjoy the classic album Blue by Joni Mitchell Just before our love got lost you said I am as constant as a northern star and I said constantly in the darkness where's that at if you want me I'll be in the bar That's it. Thank you very much for the show. It's great. Bye. In the blue TV screen light I drew a map of Canada Oh, Canada 
No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.